You know, if I was talking with 10 random people and asked them for their conception of God, I would imagine I would get a lot of different responses, maybe even very dramatically different responses from each of them. If you've been here at Ventura for any length of time, you've probably heard me use this phrase of pendulum swinging, that we as human beings can tend to pendulum swing from one extreme to another And it's not only if I were to ask people out there what their conception of God is, but even within the church, and when I'm not, I'm not just talking about Ventura Baptist, but the church, if I ask them their conception of God, I have found that people have extreme conceptions or responses to this. There are some individuals that can express this view of God that almost seems more like um, an anger-only view of God. That God just cannot wait to unleash punishment on people. And then there's this, this other view that understandably resists that view, but it's this grace-only view of God, where then all of a sudden God has like almost no justice and he doesn't really hate sin. And what I see at times are people who go to these extremes. And what happens is, I actually think, when people go to those extremes, instead of actually emphasizing God, they begin to emphasize themselves. So like in the anger-only view of God, you have people who it's like they are God's gift to the world to tell everybody how horrific they are. And for some reason, they feel better about themselves as long as they tell other people how bad they are. Others are. But what about themselves? And what about their own sin? It's like they do this to make themselves feel better. Or there can be an extreme in there too where people know I am a sinner and God's anger has come upon me and then they embrace this kind of worldly sorrow. Oh, I'm so horrible. I'm so bad. But the focus in either direction ends up being on themselves, not on God. Or there's this, the the grace only view, which is actually kind of ironic because I've seen people within that type of viewpoint that they do a similar thing as the anger only people. And what they go out is they tell everybody how wrong they are for not understanding how gracious God is. And they like kind of condemn you for not believing the same way as they are, which is, do you see the irony there? In either view, people end up emphasizing themselves and not God. But we know, the scriptures tell us, we were made for God. We were made to know God. And we even saw that last week when Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The the point of life is to know God. And if if we end up focusing on ourselves, we miss it. But what we've even been seeing in Genesis is if we really genuinely know who God is, then we'll begin to understand ourselves and how we ought to live and behave. But what we've seen in Genesis as well is that there is a perennial problem with human beings. We, we always want to focus on ourselves. We saw that with Eve and Adam when they took the fruit of the tree We see that with Cain, 
focusing on himself. We see that with Lamech and what he did. We, we turn to our own pride. But then we've also seen examples, these little hints of glory where, where for example, Adam and Eve repent, I think. They turn to the Lord and trust his forgiveness. Or we see Abel, who, who by faith gave a sacrifice. We, we read about Enoch, like we did in last week's sermon, or even Noah, that these people, they're not focused inward, but they're focused outward onto God. And in that, these individuals see something very unique about God, that God is actually utterly unique. He's not just a God of justice, and he's not just a God of grace and mercy, but he is a God of judgment and mercy. He's both. He's not either extreme. This is God's description of himself. And if we're not listening to this description, we're not listening to God. So I hope and pray that this morning we resist the temptation to elevate ourselves and that we would listen to what scriptures actually say about God and submit ourselves to him. Now, I say all of this because as we continue in this Genesis narrative, we're coming close to the story of the flood. God has shown mercy and grace and judgment, and we see how God is also fulfilling his promise to bring this seed of the woman, this rescuer that's going to come to crush the serpent. But we've also been seeing in this narrative that, if I can use it this way, the serpent's offspring is increasing. That, that, there are, that, that humanity is born sinful and that humanity is increasingly expressing their sinfulness in worse ways. We've seen that, right? As we go down from Cain to Lamech. What's God going to do about this? Is God even going to respond? Or is God just going to let sin continue and let people enjoy God's common grace gifts? God just going to let it go on? Lamech sure seemed to think so, right? But is God just a God of grace without any judgment? And then we can ask the other question, is God just a God of judgment without any grace? I, I actually think the better question to ask is, what is God like? God, just tell me who you are. Show me your glory. And this is the question that the wandering Israelites ought to ask while they're headed into the land that God has promised to them. Because the wandering Israelites, they were tempted to believe that the other nations were the blessed ones, Right? Let's just go back to Egypt. Or maybe we want these types of things that are in this land that, that we can have for ourselves. They thought that the others were blessed. And at times, we can see in the different stories of Israel, at times they were tempted to believe that God was just angry and was against them. You know, why did, why did he bring us out here? To kill us? And at other times, they're tempted to think that God doesn't really care how they act and behave. Because God is clearly gracious, so let's party and have a golden calf. Can you relate to the Israelites in that? Have you ever had seasons in your life where you only viewed God as a God of judgment? Or that was like 
the primary view. Can any of you relate to that? I know I can. And then have you also had seasons in your life maybe where you only viewed God as grace? That's it. That's all that exists. If you have felt those things, even if you haven't felt those things, this text is extremely important for us to consider because here in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, and if you have your Bibles, please go there. In Genesis 6, 1 through 8, we discover that God's response to humanity's sin is personal pain, judgment, and grace. God is revealing himself to us. It's not either grace or judgment. We see both. And in seeing God this way, I think we discover in this text what a man by the name of Alan Ross wrote, which is this, humans cannot seize divinity. They cannot overstep their bounds and blur God's distinctions. Such evil must be brought to a halt by divine intervention. Just take that in. There's a warning and a help in this passage. The call is to focus on God, submit to him, trust him. If you genuinely embrace God and who he is, then you'll recognize your position and your role as a human being. To know God is to know everything that you need to know in how to live. But to overstep your bounds is to defy the creator and to embrace death for yourself. Because to defy the creator who is life, to turn from life, means that you embrace death. So this text matters. And with this understanding, what we're going to do today is simply break down the main idea and see this in these first eight verses of chapter 6. What I want to focus on first is humanity's sin. God's response to humanity's sin. We we see the sinfulness of humanity. Now, before we read these verses here, I hope that you have seen so far, story after story, that God is immensely kind and compassionate to human beings. Have you seen that? Have you seen his graciousness and patience towards them? I just want to see head nods. have Have you seen that? Yeah. But I want to emphasize what I've emphasized in previous weeks, that God's patience and kindness does not equate God's approval of what human beings are doing. If you remember the passage that I've read in previous weeks from Romans, where Paul is writing to, I think he's addressing specifically Jewish people here in these verses, where he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. And then he goes on. And some people just stop here. This is where I actually think maybe grace-only people stop here. And they say, God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Kind, 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 kind. God is only ever exhibiting this kindness without judgment. But where does Paul go? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I think these, these two verses from Paul are an apt description of what's taking place here in Genesis. Because we know what's about to come. It's the flood. 
Now, I, I remember an illustration by a certain pastor who is now with the Lord. Um, his name was James Montgomery Boyce. And he gives an illustration on this passage. And he says, imagine, imagine that you have a miser, a Scrooge type of person. And he is accumulating wealth. He's got all these, this gold that is coming into his, into his possession. And he takes security in the fact that he has a lot of gold. And what, what he does with that gold is he doesn't spend it, right? He's a miser. But what he does is he takes these gold coins and he puts them in his attic above his bedroom. And he keeps accumulating this gold and puts it up and puts it up and puts it up. And Boyce goes on and he says, But one day, while he is sleeping and oblivious to his danger... This great weight of gold breaks through the ceiling of his bedroom, comes crashing down onto his bed, and kills him. He thought of his wealth as salvation, but it was his death. That's how God's kindness works. It's meant to lead you to turn to the Lord. God's kindness is meant to be used as it is intended, not just to be hoarded to spend on yourself or to, or to selfishly protect you. God's kindness is meant to melt your hearts. But what human beings, many human beings tend to do is they hoard the kindnesses for their own selves. And what's going to happen is that someday where they're taking all, people are taking all this trust in all the kindnesses that have been given to them, someday it's going to all come crashing down in the judgment when Jesus judges, those kindnesses are going to indict you in God's courtroom. God's grace, God's kindnesses is a sign of his patience that is urging you to turn away from your sin, turn away from you just trusting in you. And that's what we see in these verses here. Let's, let's read verses 1 and 2 and then 4 and 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Verses 4 and 5. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in, the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. God, in patience, has allowed humanity to continue to live and to procreate. And then we come into these verses, and, and these verses are some of the most confusing ones in all of Genesis. I Literally this past week, what am I preaching this Sunday? Oh my goodness. Uh, help. I mean, we have questions. Who are the sons of God? And what are the daughters of man? And who are these Nephilim? And then we have other questions in addition to that. So let's just, let's just kind of take a step back. And just look at verse 1. Verse 1 states, people were multiplying. Now, that, that was actually God's design, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is what's taking place. Multiplication is happening, to be fruitful and multiply. Then in verse 2, we read, 
And the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, there has been a lot of study by a lot of people on what this means. And I'm not going to share with you all the various views. I'm just going to share with you what my personal view is. And if you want to study more, feel free. I can give you commentaries to recommend. I believe that this phrase, Son of God, that, that we ought to look into the Scriptures to see how is this phrase used in other passages of Scripture. Okay? That helps us to understand here. Now, this phrase, Son of God, can be used in a couple or a few different ways. In the Scriptures, this phrase, Son of God, can be referencing uh, someone who is in a position of, of power who can judge and execute justice. They're a son of God. This, this phrase also can be used to refer to angelic beings. So like, for example, in Job, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I agree with actually many who seem to believe that this phrase, Son of God, this phrase, Son of God, is merging those two ideas. It's not just one or the other, but it's merging the ideas. Meaning, this text, if we just go back to Genesis chapter 6, God is emphasizing the sinfulness of human beings, right? Not, not the sinfulness of angels, right? The sinfulness of human beings. And so I actually think what we're doing is, or what, what Moses is doing, he's merging the concepts. What we have here are human rulers. Human rulers, human individuals who have power, who have authority, who can execute justice, so to speak. But I don't think that negates the angelic realm. That these sons of, these sons of God are heavily influenced by the demonic realm. Now, by the way, I think that this fits culturally as well, where you have in Egypt, for example, how did they view Pharaoh? Pharaoh was a, what? He was a god. In other societies around them, they might view their rulers as half human, half divine. What I think what Moses is doing here is he's saying, humans are humans. They're not. They're not divine and they're not half human, half divine, but they can be heavily influenced by the seed of the serpent. And that's what I think we have here. The sons of God are these rulers who are heavily influenced by the seed of the serpent. And is the serpent going to win? Or is God going to crush the serpent? That, that, that's, the, that's the context that I think that we have in this passage. Now, how do we know that these people are sinning? Because in some ways, you look at it and like, they got married. Oh my goodness, how horrible. They just married people that they chose. Like, what's, what's the problem with this? Well, there's a couple of things. And there's, there's one, I think, actually big hint to see that they're sinning here from this text. And it's actually in the phrasing of, they saw and they took. Is there another example earlier on? in Genesis, where someone saw something attractive and they took it for themselves. Ugh, rack our brains. When did that happen? It was when Eve took the fruit, right? She saw, she took, and she ate. And we have the same phrasing here that's taking place with these individuals. They saw something attractive, they took for themselves. They're following the same pattern as the serpent. 
Now, what are they taking? It's actually in this context, it's who are they taking? They're taking the daughters of man. What is that phrase? That phrase simply means they're taking women for themselves. But the emphasis, I think, here is on any they chose. Now, when you look at that, you might, in English, just say any they chose. They just, you know, I, I chose to marry my wife. Is that wrong that I did that? No. I think that the context and the phraseology here is emphasizing not simply any they chose, but it's any and all. It's not just saying that these rulers were being very wise in, in choosing one woman for themselves, but I think that this actually brings out the idea of harems. Any and all that they would want. You know, the harems having many, many women for themselves. So the more powerful the ruler, the more women that he has. So, so it's true that these people, humanity was being fruitful and multiplying. But not in God's way. They were doing it all in, in their ways, by their means. They're not joining in marriage between one man and one woman. They're not naked and unashamed. Instead, they're viewing people as commodities to take and consume. You're attractive, I take you. And now you're mine. Do you, do you see how this is sinful? You see the brokenness here? Now before you just look out at this text and look at the people then and go, yeah, that is bad. I want us to think about ourselves and, and the day in which we live. In, in some ways, we don't have to have harems in order to take and consume. Right? We have, we have our phone and we can just tap. I think the most recent statistic with regards to pornography is that if you ask, if you ask men if they have viewed pornography within the last month, nine out of ten will say yes. That means if you go into Meyer and you see 10 men, the chances are if you get 10 men in front of you and you ask, nine out of 10 of them are going to say, yes, we have in the last month. Now, take it further, and the study actually also has asked women the same question. 60% of women have. 60% in the last month. We don't have to have harems in our country. We're just like the evil rulers then. We take, we see something attractive, and we consume. Instead of respecting and honoring one another as God has intended, recognizing people as created in the image of God, we consume. Eaten by our own lusts. I hope that you would see the vile nature of sexual sin, the destructive nature of sexual sin. And I'm going to ask you, are you an individual that's hiding in it, even today? 
or tolerating it, even today. Now, you might say, well, whew, man, after hearing that, I'm just going to hide it more because I don't want to feel too bad about this. And that, I think, is exactly what the serpent wants. Just keep it in the dark. Keep it in the darkness. Why would he want you to keep it in the darkness? Because it can fester there. Come to the light. That's what I want to urge you. If, if you are in this, come to the light. Because when Jesus, the light, exposes this, the Bible actually says when we come to the light, we have fellowship with one another. Why? Because now Jesus is central. And Jesus can be applied to these, these wounds of sin. Come to the light. Because Jesus is the rescuer. But you might think, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, I'm not hurting anyone. And that could have been what people thought in these days as well. I mean, you look at verses 4 and 5, and it goes on to say that the Nephilim were around in those days and that the children from these harems began to be people of great renown and power. Who in the world are Nephilim? In some translations, you'll see they were giants. And, and I'm just going to say this kind of as a side note, but I think it's helpful. Um, the reason why you might have the word giant show up here is because a long, long time ago in B.C. era, they didn't know what that word meant, but they took from Exodus when it talks about the Nephilim and talks about these huge people. And so then they said, yeah, I think it means giants. But that's actually not, um, I don't believe that's the meaning of Nephilim. The, the emphasis that we have in Genesis here is on their power. These are people of great power and great renown. So we have the wandering Israelites reading about this, and that's what they're struggling with. It's like they look at other nations who are defying God, and they're like, it sure seems like it's working for them. You get that? Like, they can defy God and defy God and defy God, and then they get more and more and more and more power. I want some power. I want to feel like I'm in control of my life. Any of you ever feel that way? Like, I just want, mm, come on. But the Israelites are wandering around while all these people, they have their cities and their homes and the walls around them, and they have wealth and gold and food, and the Israelites are just eating manna. Gross. Right? It sure seems like defying God works. And it works out for these people and not for us. It sure seems like I can just sin and consume and I'll be fine. But what did we say earlier about God's kindnesses? God's kindnesses are meant to lead you to what? Repentance. So the question for these people in, in Noah's day is, are they going to repent? Are they going to turn to the Lord? Because the flood is coming. The, the reality is, is that we as human beings can be so tempted to think because God doesn't give us an immediate punishment, then we're fine. And it's okay to keep going in it. But it's not. Are we going to turn to the Lord and trust in him? Or are we going to presume on the kindnesses. See, sin is so deceiving. Sin is so destructive. Sin lies. Are we going to look to the Lord or are we going to believe the flesh? Are we going to believe the serpent? 
So we see humanity's sin. I hope we see humanity's sin in these verses. Now we need to see God's response to sin. The first one I want to emphasize is personal pain. Look at verses 5 through 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, if you mark in your Bibles, you might want to underline in verse 2 the word saw and then in verse 5 the word saw. And what you're going to see is that humanity's view of how they're living is very different from God's view. They think they're fine. We see, we look at the women, come on, be a part of our harem, life is great. God sees, and what does he see? Sin, wickedness. The sons of God did what they wanted apart from thinking about God. They thought they were fine, but God sees wickedness. And look at, look at how God describes the wickedness. Every intention of the thought of the heart was only evil, continually. There's a persistent, insistent, incessant internal drive for sin. They don't want to live for God. And how is that revealed that they don't want to live for God? It's revealed in that they just don't even think about God. Why is that so bad to just not be thinking about God and giving God your attention? I remember, if I remember correctly, this conversation, there was a, a person who I know who, who tried to tell me that you're not really disobeying God if you're not thinking about him. Like, how can God hold you accountable for something if you're just not thinking about him? I'll give you an illustration. Um, this week, I'm going to Washington, D.C. with Kaiki, and I'm leaving Thursday, and I'll be back on Monday. And so let's just say I come back Monday night, and Tracy, she, she gives me a hug, and she says, I have missed you so much. It's so good to see you. And all my kids come up, Dad, Dad, we love you. And they give me hugs. Oh, I'm, and then my response is, Wow, I didn't even think about you guys. How do you think all of them would feel? Wow. He doesn't love us. Right? Now you say, well, that's different. We're talking about God and your family. Yeah, it's different. Because God created us for him. And you can't, as I said earlier, you cannot reject life and have life. He is life. To not give God your mind, your heart, your soul is to not love him. He made you for him. And yet these people, they're just not even thinking about him. They don't consider him. And so we read that the the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now, this word for regret is actually a word that also translates to repent. So you might have a translation that says the Lord repented. And you're like, wait a second. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says God is not like man that he would change his mind. And yet here it says that he is repented. What in the world? We have a contradiction. And I understand that tension that we can feel. 
But what's actually very interesting is in the majority of cases when this word is used in relationship to God, it is indicating, let me just make sure I'm reading it correctly, it is most often used to refer to God intending to change his pattern in the future, as the future goes on. It's indicating something different is going to happen. Do we know that something different is going to happen in just a little bit? Yeah. People have been presuming on God's kindnesses, and that cannot go on indefinitely. Now, why is the flood coming? Because the nonstop sinning grieves God's heart. Do you hear that? God is grieved. God is grieved by sin. This actually, the word for regret and grieve, actually form a contrast with the previous chapter. Do you remember what Lamech says about Noah? And you can look in your Bibles in, in chapter 5. It's, Lamech says of Noah that, that he is going to bring comfort and rest. And then we read about God that he regrets and grieves. When you regret something, you look for comfort. When you grieve something, you long for rest. God himself must bring comfort and rest because of this sin. So I want you to understand this. God is not simply a being who longs to be angry. He grieves. He grieves over human sin. Human sin that ultimately ends up tearing everything apart. God, who is life and brings all things together, cannot be rejected and everything be okay. Yet God in his mercy and patience over and over again continues to call people to turn to him. But there is a point in time when God says, enough. Because the pain and his pain responds to human sin. So because God is pained by sin, judgment comes. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And then verse 7, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now here we have the mention of the spirit again. In Genesis 1, the spirit appears to bring order from chaos. In Genesis 3, the spirit comes to bring judgment to Adam and Eve in the spirit of the day. And now we have the spirit coming, and he's doing a similar thing. I love how a man by the name of Victor Hamilton puts it. He says, where the spirit hovers, there is order, and chaos is restrained. Where it is withdrawn, chaos flourishes unchecked. Now, this is, this is the idea when it says the spirit shall not abide in man. The phraseology in the Hebrew can have different meanings or nuances. This is not saying that the spirit was indwelling the individuals, like we talk about Christians being indwelt by the spirit. This is talking about the spirit remaining with people in the sense that the spirit gave life. 
And so the spirit is the breath that gives life to human beings. And the spirit saying, I will not remain with them, is that life is going to be taken from these people. I wish that we truly, genuinely understood how utterly dependent we actually are on God for survival. All God has to do is say, I remove myself. We're done. We're dead. And so we see in this text that there's 120 years for man's days. Now, this could mean that after the flood, humanity's lifespan is going to be shorter. That did happen. This also could mean, and I actually prefer this interpretation, is that in 120 years, the flood is going to take place. And I actually think, too, by the way, this continues to emphasize God's patience. Like, here we have, that's 120 years. That feels like a long time to me. Does that feel like a long time to you? You know, God is already grieved by sin. And instead of saying, and so right now, destroy, I'll give him 120 more years. God is patient, isn't he? God is so patient. And yet he declares that he is going to wipe, wipe, blot out man. This word for wipe, actually, or this this word for blot out, is actually used in other portions of Scripture uh, when the Israelites were to clean and to wipe their dishes. I'm going to wipe off the dirty dish. That's what God is doing to the earth. He's wiping it off. But here, here's actually something very intriguing by this too. When you wipe a dish, do you wipe off the dish and then throw it in the trash? Why would you wipe the dish if you're just going to throw it in the trash, right? You're going to wipe the dish so that what? It can be used again, right? So you can eat from it again. This, this emphasizes that even God's judgment in the midst of his own pain, we get a glimpse of the reality that God God has not lost grace. God is still gracious, right? Because, why? Because he made a promise to Adam and Eve. A serpent crusher is going to come, and the serpent will be crushed. So he's wiping the earth so that a New creation, so to speak, can come. And so that this seed of the woman will continue. Which leads us to that last point. God's response to humanity's sin is personal pain. It is judgment and grace. Verse 8. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor or grace means undeserved merit. So don't read this story and say, oh, Noah was the only guy who impressed God with how good he was. No, no, no. He found favor, which just means he didn't deserve it either. Yet somehow, in the midst of all of these people, Noah would have been the same way if God did not shower him with his grace. Do you hear that? He would have been the same way if it wasn't for divine favor. 
And so for the Israelites who are reading this story, they should remember, even when it seems like all hope is lost, God has made promises and he has to follow through on his promises because God never lies. God's always faithful. When it seems like days are dark and bleak, when it looks like God's kindnesses are just allowing sin to continue to go on. No, he's worthy to be trusted. He, he has promised grace through the serpent crusher. And so he's worthy to be trusted no matter what we're going through. And we know, we know because we know more of the story that from Noah did come the serpent crusher. And I love the parallels even from this story as we look forward into the future to Jesus. Because there's another person who is said to have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You remember who that is? It's Mary. She found favor. And as Matthew writes about this birth of Jesus, he communicates it as the Spirit. It's like the Spirit hovering over the waters of Mary's womb to bring this new one. This, this one who is going to be the beginning of the new creation, the serpent crusher. Mary didn't deserve for that kindness, but then Jesus came and Jesus was born and Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. He was a new Adam. And God, in pain over humanity's sin, met that pain. And Jesus, in human flesh, took the pain of sin and judgment on himself so that the scriptures prophesy that in Jesus, grace and judgment come together. Mercy and judgment kiss in Christ on the cross. And for anyone who turns to Jesus, you find mercy and grace forgiveness. Now I think about people in Noah's day. And as I think about them, I can't think about, I, I can't help but think about what we have received as well. Uh, Noah was not some impressive guy, and so God decided to save him. And you know what? The same is true for all of us who have trusted in Christ. Do you know that? Sometimes we can get prideful, like, well, there was something that got God's attention in me. No. I know I read some from this passage last week, but I want to read it again to just help us to savor, be humbled, and to rejoice in God's kindness towards us. In Ephesians, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan. The, the serpent. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature, can you say this next phrase, children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And let's say that parentheses together. By grace you have been saved. Did we earn any of this? Did you earn any of it? No. We're just like all of them. 
It's pure grace, nothing to take pride in. And so Paul goes, and we're raised, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've experienced this grace from God, how do we read a story like this with Noah? How ought to, I think, the question as well, how ought the Israelites to have read this story? They ought to have been shining the light of God's grace and judgment and mercy to the people around them and to one another. Jesus actually comments on this time period and, and gives us his teaching on how we should think about this. In Matthew 24, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They just weren't thinking about God at all. Ventura, what is it like today? What is it like today in our society? It's like the days of Noah. And so Peter, when he talks... Oh, actually, let me go on what Jesus says. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. And so Peter also adds, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What are scoffers saying? Scoffers are saying, like, listen, we're doing fine on our own. We don't need God. How many conversations have you had or have you heard where people have just said, we don't need God. We're doing fine without him. I think that's what Lamech said. I think that's what people in Noah's day said. We're doing fine without him. We've got society, culture, gold, food, all this stuff. We're good. And so these scoffers in the last days will also say, we're fine without God. You keep telling us God's going to come back again. Like, seriously. Everything has just continued to go on like it always has been. There's no problem here. And then Peter says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. Now, he actually just said, but in those days, God destroyed the world in a flood. He did something shocking. And Paul says, or Peter says it's going to happen again. That this earth is reserved now for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. There, there, there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. And some people will hear this and they'll say, well, that's not fair. Now, that's really interesting to me. The scoffers will scoff at God and say, yeah, right, he's not coming, whatever, who cares? Then you say there's a judgment that's coming, and then they'll say that's not fair. Well, God just sounds like he's angry and he wants to just destroy us all. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It's just like in, the days, in these days here where God says, I'm grieved, I'm going to destroy, but I'll give him 120 more years. Or Jesus comes to this earth, dies and rises from the dead, and ascends up into heaven and says, I'm going to come and judge and people go, okay, so we can just continue on in sin. No, may his kindness lead you to repentance. God is patient towards you. 
not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So how should that impel you and me? Ventura, listen. If we know this is happening, how ought we to be in sharing the news of Jesus to other people around us? Is God gracious? Is he? Has he been gracious towards you? Yes. You know, one of the interesting things about Enoch, which I didn't get into last week, but Jude talks about Enoch and his godliness as revealed in proclaiming God's judgment. Doesn't sound, sounds kind of harsh. Noah, as well, declaring the righteousness of God. Why? Because you need to repent. You need to turn. There's this urging to declare God because we love the souls of people because God has loved us so greatly. We have been set free to declare the message of God. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's God's view. So we started this sermon talking about the extremes. You know, is God a God of judgment or a God of grace? And that's a bad question. God is full of mercy and justice. And we see that in his character, that his response to humanity's sin is personal pain, judgment, grace. Humans cannot seize divinity. They cannot overstep their bounds and blur God's distinction. Such evil must be brought to a halt by divine intervention. And he does bring it to a halt. And for you, he's either brought it to a halt in Jesus Christ because you are his child and you have trusted in him, or he's going to bring it to a halt someday at the judgment. I pray you turn to him today. And if you have turned to him today, that you would turn to him again and again and again and again and savor his goodness and grace. With that, let me pray for us. Oh Lord, you are good, you are kind, you are just, and you are merciful. So I ask, Father, that you would work within our hearts, that we would take you seriously, because we can't, in our own strength, we want to take ourselves too seriously. Please, Father, may our hearts be melted and moved by your kindnesses. And I pray that everyone here, everyone here, would truly have eyes opened to what they deserve, but also their eyes opened to your grace so that they would be set free and know more of their freedom in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.